millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 39 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a three-part case. The second and third installments will be available next week. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The property did not stand out. Closed vertical blinds shielded the windows from prying eyes. The front door and brick facade were painted white. The chipped paint was offset against half a dozen bouquets of flowers all the colours of the rainbow that had been secured to a drain pipe running parallel against the front door. In County Durham around two weeks before Christmas 2014, the body of a female was discovered in a property located a short distance from Hartlepool Town Centre. Cleveland police who serve the port town in the northeast of England were called to the address on Stephen Street, an area lined with brick and pebble-dash terrace houses, some of which were boarded up. On the morning of Tuesday, December 9th, landlord John Megerson had knocked on the front door. He received no response, so at precisely 8.46am, he entered the seemingly ordinary property to find his tenant, a woman he knew as Angie, 
sitting on a red sofa in the front room. It appeared as if a bomb had gone off. Broken furniture was scattered everywhere. Household items were smashed to pieces. A dark red liquid covered the furnishings, and the ceiling was spattered with what looked to be blood. John Megason saw Angie's diminutive figure dressed in a small red t-shirt, her left arm still inside a worn lumberjack-style overshirt. Aside from a sock on her left foot, she was stripped naked from the waist down. Her legs were spread apart. As the blinds had been closed, the landlord switched on the light and saw his tenant's face. It was covered in blood. Her head was turned as if she was absently looking to her left. Ash covered her right ear. Megason picked up the phone and dialed 999. Following instructions from an emergency operator, he was directed to check for a pulse. Angie was cold to the touch. While waiting for a northeast ambulance crew to arrive, Megason thought that his tenant, who had lived at the property for several years, had violently taken her own life. Either that or she had been subjected to a brutal attack and a series of horrific indignities. The pair had last spoken the previous evening, and Angie was upset. She threw her house keys at her landlord. Hoping Angie had calmed down, Megason came back the following morning to return the keys. When an ambulance pulled up to Stevens Street and paramedics assessed the scene, they contacted the Cleveland police straight away. Hello, please. Hi, it's the ambulance service. Hello. Hi, can we have your attention? The call was made at 8.58am. Face is covered in blood, she's half naked, it looks like the house has been trashed and there's blood everywhere. Oh. Nothing's been confirmed as to her well-being, whether she is or she isn't breathing. Right. The crews have just arrived and asked for your attendance immediately, please. After the authorities arrived, a forensic team examined the address. Cleveland police later provided a statement in which they confirmed that they were treating the death as suspicious. A murder investigation was underway, and two arrests had been made. In the custody of the police were two teenage girls. The 13- and 14-year-old were being questioned in connection with the incident at separate police stations. How exactly they were involved remained to be seen. The police had yet to make a formal identification. However, it was reported in several local newspapers that the woman was believed to be Angela Marjorie Wrightson. The 39-year-old was well known in the area. News spread on social media and locals offered their condolences. Posting on Facebook, Angela's neighbours described her as kind, lovely, but vulnerable. A photograph was published by local and national media. Angela appeared older than her years, 
she was incredibly underweight. Reports would later confirm that she was five feet four inches tall and weighed just six and a half stone. Angela was generous. She gave sweets and chocolates to the local children and enjoyed feeding her neighbour's dog. She was fond of any animal that crossed her path. She often invited people into her home, taking great pleasure in entertaining them. Angela was frequently seen buying cleaning products. She was house proud. However, sadly, despite her generosity, Angela Wrightson had her demons. She was struggling with alcohol dependence and appeared to be a very different person when she drank. Seven months earlier, she had appeared before Hartlepool Magistrate Court. When she was highly inebriated, Angela made several nuisance phone calls to the emergency services, falsely claiming she had a broken jaw. Although admitting a charge of sending a false telecommunication message, she claimed at the time she needed help. Angela Wrightson was reprimanded by a judge and handed a fine of £35. The cause for some of the repeated phone calls would only become clear days after her death. There were many occasions when Angela was publicly intoxicated, frequently sprawled out in the middle of the street when police arrived. Local schoolchildren teased her, and she had acquired the nickname Alco Angie. On the face of it, it appeared that Angela was buying alcohol and cigarettes for teenagers in exchange for more cigarettes and alcohol. It would not be until the full details of her circumstances and the horrific events of December 8th and 9th, 2014 came to light. It was discovered she was often bullied into making purchases, or she just craved company. Most locals believed her to be harmless. Angela had a sweet side and sometimes ordered pizza for her neighbours. They said the thought of killing someone so defenceless was sickening. One couple, Alan and Debbie Dixon, who lived on Stevens Street, offered to cook Angela Christmas dinner that year. The windows to her home had recently been smashed and items stolen from the property. On this occasion, Angela would not buy the local teenagers alcohol, so they decided to enact their revenge. In an interview, Alan Dixon spoke with a journalist about how his neighbour often called for his help. Youths frequently befriended Angela when she was drunk and asked her to buy them alcohol. Groups of the youngsters would enter her home and use it as a place to drink, but often refused to leave. Angela called Dixon on several occasions in tears, and he would come round to the address with his guard dog to empty the property. Published in the Telegraph newspaper, Dixon spoke about what happened. On this one occasion, they stole her keys and locked her out of her house. I had to break in with a sledgehammer because she was stuck outside. 
at the time Dixon made mention of the two girls who had been arrested. He knew the pair. They had attended Angela's home in the past. They're only young, but they both drink, and when I challenge them, they insist they're old enough. But I know they're only 13 and 14, Dixon said. The thought that two young lasses of that age could be involved in something so horrific is really shocking and makes you despair. Angela's neighbour said she was preyed upon because she was too kind-hearted. solicitor who acted on Angela's behalf when she appeared in court spoke about the difficulties she had faced. John Relton said, My client has had a very torrid life. It is no great surprise, therefore, she finds herself consumed by alcohol that has taken over her life. She does apologise through me for what she has done. Angela Wrightson's mother would later provide a statement in which she remarked it was no secret that Angela had faced difficulties in her life. Maureen Wrightson said the news of her daughter's death was desperately sad for the whole family. She thanked all of the well-wishers who had reached out either in person or through social media. Journalists and the public wish to learn more about Angela Wrightson's life. How did she end up in this position? I mean, everybody knew her. She was a part of the Bricks and Mortar Fixing and Fittings. I went round there after a few times and just sat with her, had a drink, had a chat with her. She was, especially in the street where she lived, everybody knew her in the street. And everybody sort of like looked out for her because they knew she was vulnerable. During the summer, she was always on the step. A lot of friends around, so-called friends, because they were all drinking. They were just basically drinking associates. Kids would go around because there's nothing else for them to do. She'd go to the shop for them, she'd buy the drink. I'd say people definitely, definitely took advantage of her. You can't imagine two young girls doing that to another human being. We've got streets just a, a few miles away from here that are really affluent. You've got really big houses and then, you know, two doors down there's somebody that um, has never worked, their parents never worked, the kids struggle, they're on free school meals. So it, it, it's, it feels like it's almost something that's hidden, but, it, but it's not. It is right there on your doorstep. Like her eight brothers and sisters who she rarely, if ever, spoke to, Angela was raised in the care system. She had served time in prison. A criminal record references almost 50 convictions. Angela had been served with a drinking banning order and several antisocial behaviour orders. The amount she drank no doubt played some part in the numerous bruises that marked her face. When drunk, she would get into fights, threaten to destroy property, and often contact her landlord demanding he fix things that John Megason would subsequently discover were not broken. She contacted neighbours telling them she was in an unfit state to cook. It was seen by many as a call for help. She was lonely, 
Angela would sit on her doorstep in the hope someone, anyone, would talk to her. There was evidence Angela self-harmed. She had at one point been sectioned for her own safety. While it did not play any part in causing her death, a doctor later identified an old injury to Angela's head could very well have caused some form of brain damage. Life was undoubtedly challenging, but based on media reports regarding her circumstances, Angela was in contact with social services. Financial support was provided. Payments for her rent were paid directly to her landlord, and a social worker occasionally visited to provide guidance, so Angela was buying the essentials rather than more alcohol. After she had been released from prison for the final time in 2011, she moved to Hartlepool. Leaving her hometown of Darlington behind, Angela found happiness with a partner, Billy. He was described by a friend as the one man who really mattered to her. It was said to be the happiest period of Angela's life. Sadly, when Billy died of alcohol-related complications, it was soon after this that her home became a location where youths began to congregate. She was someone who was easy to take advantage of. Angela's alcohol intake increased drastically. The only moments where she stemmed the tide of addiction was through the solace she found when looking after her neighbour's animals, or through random acts of kindness treating the children of Stephen Street by popping a chocolate bar through their letterbox. Despite the efforts of social workers and the staff at several detox facilities, who worked to get her sober in both 2012 and 2013, Angela's demons got the better of her. Following proceedings at Teesside Youth Court, the two young suspects who it was alleged ended Angela Wrightson's life appeared at Teesside Crown Court in separate hearings. Neither the judge nor barristers wore gowns or wigs in the hearing as they spoke in court. This was to subdue what could be seen as the intimidating etiquette of the legal proceedings. Regardless of if they are a defendant or a witness, any changes are made in the courtroom to accommodate children so they can effectively engage in the legal process. These include referring to a child by their first name, using simple language, providing regular breaks, not sitting them in the dock but near their counsel or appropriate adult, allowing a visit to the court beforehand so the children can familiarise themselves with the location, and also keeping the number of public onlookers in the gallery to a minimum. Both of the suspects looked pale when they were brought before the court. Due to their ages, the 13- and 14-year-old could not be identified. Acting for the Crown Prosecutor Sue Jacobs chose not to detail what had happened. I do not think we need to explain it, she said. 
It was confirmed that following a post-mortem, Angela Wrightson had died from a multitude of injuries. Due to the number and severity of the wounds, an exact cause of death could not be established at the time, although blood loss was a contributing factor. The older of the two accused was inconsolable, wiping away the tears which stained the hooded tracksuit top she was wearing. As she was led away, she looked desperately into the public gallery. The 13-year-old, dressed in black with bright red trainers, said nothing, only rocking her head back and forth when she was asked to confirm her name. Handcuffs bound her wrists, and she was being watched by two guards of the court. There was no argument when it was proposed that both of the girls be kept in youth detention accommodation. The judge recorder of Middlesbrough, Simon Bornarton QC, said there was little option to do much else when he informed their parents and guardians of what would happen next. A further hearing was held to schedule a timetable for the legal proceedings. It was agreed that a trial would take place in June 2015. This time, the two suspects were not in attendance. The judge, Simon Bornarton QC, informed the court that he had come to learn that the names of the young girls accused of the murder of Angela Wrightson were being shared on both Facebook and Twitter. The judge told the barristers for both the Crown and Defence at Teesside Crown Court that a warning would need to be issued not only to the local community, but the wider public, that this behaviour was illegal. The individuals who shared the names of the suspects could very well be prosecuted. The actions of social media users would have a devastating impact not only on those directly linked to the case, but the entire legal proceedings. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours, and the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. The opening remarks of Prosecutor Nicholas Campbell QC described the sheer horrors of what happened on Stephen Street in Hartlepool. It became clear that Angela Wrightson had been the victim of a sustained and brutal assault, Campbell said. There were well over 100 injuries. The evidence at the scene of the crime showed she had been struck in 12 separate locations within that room. A number of implements were used as weapons. They included a wooden stick with screws standing proud of the surface, a TV set, a printer from a home computer, a coffee table and a shovel. Smaller items such as a kettle and a metal pan were used together with a glass vase and other ornaments. It was clear Angela Wrightson had been tortured. Pieces of broken glass and ornamental pebbles were found around the lower parts of her body. She was in no position to defend herself against such a barbaric attack, despite her best efforts. She suffered three broken fingers and damage to her arms and wrists. Evidence suggested that a pad of paper had been set alight and put to one of Angela's ears, along with burns from a cigarette. The prosecution were arguing the alleged actions of both girls led to the death of Angela Wrightson. They were jointly responsible for the murder. According to the prosecutor, when interviewed, neither girl had provided a true account of what had happened. Pictures of the items used in the attack were shown to the court. All of them were either smeared or stained in blood. Detailing Angela Wrightson's wounds, Home Office pathologist Dr Mark Egan informed the court of his findings when he carried out the post-mortem. He described how Angela was undernourished for a woman of her petite size. A comprehensive list of her injuries was made. There was 80 wounds to the head alone. 
It was clear Angela was conscious during at least part of the attack. She had wounds consistent with someone defending themselves. She also had bruising which suggested she had been restrained with a great deal of force. Dr. Egan was of the opinion that the attack was not quick, as the injuries were so numerous it would take a considerable amount of time to inflict them. From Teesside Crown Court, both girls pleaded not guilty to a charge of murder. Due to their ages, their names could not be reported for legal reasons. It was hard to reconcile their actions with the two timid young girls who stood before the court. The prosecution had submitted the attack was punctuated by brief periods when the defendants would take selfie photos. Smartly dressed in a cardigan and a blouse, the youngest of the two said that neither did she strike Angela Wrightson nor instruct her friend to carry out the killing. She claimed to play no part in the assault. In this podcast, we refer to her as Jennifer. However, this is not her real name. A year older, her co-accused accepted that she struck Angela Wrightson but denied intending to cause serious harm. We will refer to her using the pseudonym of Samantha. Samantha's counsel argued his client had a mental abnormality that affected her actions at the time of the killing. Samantha pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. Expert witnesses for both the prosecution and defence agreed that Samantha had an abnormality of mind, although their opinions diverged as to how substantial the abnormality was and whether this hindered Samantha's ability to fully understand her actions. The court would hear that the two suspects had become nearly inseparable in the lead-up to the killing. A neighbour would describe them individually as quite sweet, but together, quote, they were devils. Jennifer and Samantha were in the care of social services at the time of the attack. It would be understood following analysis of their circumstances in later years. The girls were not overly familiar when they were younger, and there was no evidence that the defendants knew each other well before they were teenagers. After both girls moved out following difficulties in their home life, the people charged with their care in the local authority had had a challenging time keeping Jennifer and Samantha under control. As each year passed, they grew more and more troubled. The blossoming relationship between them seemed to bring out the worst in each other. They would run off together. Jennifer and Samantha roamed the streets of Hartlepool in the early hours, drinking cider and smoking, posting about their escapades on social media. When they grew bored, Jennifer and Samantha would contact the police, letting them know where they were so they could get a lift home. Before the incident, efforts had been made to keep the two girls apart, 
as they were a continual bad influence on each other's lives. But they ignored any instructions to cut off contact. Jennifer, the younger of the two, sent Samantha a text message around six weeks before Angela Wrightson's death. The message read, We're not allowed no contact with each other. Who's not allowed no contact with each other? L-M-F-A-O which stands for laugh my fucking ass off. We will be with each other through thick and thin, fucking crank man, just because you are my little partner in crime. In further correspondence, Jennifer wrote, putting me out of town thinking that we still won't get in touch with each other and shit. Ha ha ha. Well, I can't wait to see you when I'm down. Get fucking mortal. Love you, gorgeous girl. Samantha had a difficult relationship with her mother, and she was living under the care of the local authority. The pair had met earlier on December 8th, the day it was believed that Angela Wrightson was murdered. They began to argue and it was claimed that Samantha was allegedly told by her mother to go and kill herself. Samantha became distraught and had to be removed from the property by an older sibling. Jennifer was living with her foster parents. The day Angela Wrightson's body was found, December 9th, it seemed that Jennifer was only too happy to talk about what had happened. When she spoke to a friend, she said that Angela begged for her life. She was terrified. That night, they had entered Angela's home uninvited through the unlocked front door. Jennifer claimed that after a few hours of revelry, Angela became violent. In her version of the events, Jennifer said that Angela had threatened her and Samantha with a knife. Jennifer told her friend that she was not involved, only watching from the sidelines. The 13-year-old was using her mobile phone frequently, and through Facebook she sent numerous messages. She even made a phone call through Facebook, and one of Jennifer's friends could hear her laughing along with Samantha. They both sounded drunk. This was approximately 10.40pm. Police interviewed Jennifer's friend and the witness offered a statement in which she described what she heard. On the other end of the line, Jennifer's friend perceived noises in the background to be that of fighting. Jennifer could be heard shouting, Go on, Samantha. Smash her head in. Bray her. Fucking kill her. Jennifer's friends later said that the suspects disliked Angela Wrightson although the reason why was not ultimately clear. During the assault, evidence suggested someone had forcefully stomped on Angela's head and lifted up a television, throwing it down onto her body. Some of the kicks to the victim were so hard, the prosecutor said, flesh was coming out of Angela's head and pools of blood were forming. 
after it was suspected Angela Wrightson died from her injuries in the late hours of December 8th or possibly the early morning of December 9th. Around 4am, the two girls tried to contact one of their care workers, then a taxi company. Neither picked up. Unable to get transport back to their respective homes, they called the police and asked to be collected near Angela's address on Stephen Street. A recording of the conversation would later be released, in which the girls' voices were disguised. They could be heard laughing. Hello, please. I just reported myself missing. Around ten minutes later, after becoming frustrated that their makeshift taxi service had not arrived, they again called the police. Like, I've just rang to let the police know where me and my friend are at. Will you tell me how long they're going to be on prison? The sort of thing is walking hard. There's no need to be swearing, ringing up and swearing and going on like that. What's your name? <laughs> well, I'm cold. <laughs> they told the operator it was, quote, fucking freezing, as the weather was fucking Baltic. They asked how long it was going to be until they were picked up. In the pitch black of night at 4.29am, the officers who collected Jennifer and Samantha did not notice blood on their clothing. They had no reason to check. Officers were unaware of what had happened at the address. When in the back of the police car, Jennifer and Samantha seemed in high spirits and started laughing. They were clearly drunk. It was later understood that six litres of cider had been consumed between Jennifer, Samantha and Angela, although no one knows how much each of them drank. The girls were giggling, so much so they were asked by the police officer what was so funny. Jennifer reached for her phone and took a selfie photo in the back of the patrol car, sharing it on Snapchat along with some accompanying text. It read, me and Samantha in the back of the busy van again. Quickly realising what was going on after overhearing the girls talking about turning the camera flash on, an officer sitting in the front of the vehicle told them to stop taking photographs. When Jennifer's phone was later examined, experts would find pictures she had taken of the scene. Both girls were seen laughing and drinking cider. Angela Wrightson is in the background. The prosecutor described the image to the jury. Angela Wrightson is sitting facing the camera with her back to the sofa and she is sitting either on the sofa itself leaning forward or on the floor leaning backwards with her back against the bottom part of the sofa. She is alive but she is not smiling, and her face is marked. One photo was time-stamped taken around 9pm on Monday, December 8. Another had even been shared on social media. 
as the prosecution built their case, they tracked the girls' movements. Jennifer and Samantha had travelled to Angela's home earlier that day. However, when they knocked, she did not answer. They returned and let themselves in at 7.15pm and left sometime around 11 o'clock. A statement from a resident on Stephen Street mentioned she heard one of the girls say, Open the door, it's us. We've got drink. Angela had last been seen in her local shop and returned just after 7.30pm, 15 minutes after the girls were said to have entered her home. In a CCTV still, later issued by Cleveland Police, Dressed in a bomber jacket with a shaved head, Angela is pictured purchasing a bottle of cider and what appears to be a bar of chocolate. It was believed the violent attack occurred shortly before 9pm. After the girls left Angela's home for the first time at 11pm, they went to visit a male teenager who lived locally. Along with his friend, Jennifer and Samantha went to a local park. Police believe by this point Angela had either been killed or was at death's door. Samantha, the older of the two, mentioned to their friend slicing someone's face. She also complained that Jennifer just smoked a cigarette while she had done all the work. The teenage male witness, who could not be named for legal reasons, asked if that was blood on their clothing. Jennifer had dark stains on her jacket and jeans. Jennifer and Samantha told him they had had an accident and fallen over. And giving evidence, the friend who subsequently testified in a separate set of legal proceedings suggested the girls had been in another altercation. The witness told the court that the girls had, quote, done someone in before. The statement was not addressed at the time, but would become a point of contention during the judge's summary of the case. As the girls left, the witness overheard one of the defendants say, we have got to get back to the house to check if she is dead. The witness even received a Facebook message from Jennifer on the morning of her arrest. She still had access to her phone and said that she might be, quote, getting done for murder. Evidence from Jennifer's phone suggested that they listened to some music before returning to Angela's home at 2am. It is not known for sure whether Angela was dead. The Cleveland police were not informed of Jennifer and Samantha's location on Stephen Street until around two hours later. After news of the killing made the headlines on December 9th, Samantha spoke with her support worker. He was unaware of what exactly had happened. While out on a shopping trip, Samantha asked several questions. How do you think it feels to kill somebody? Do you think you feel empty? Do you think you feel bad? 
after inquiring how long someone would spend in prison for murder. Samantha was told the difference between manslaughter and murder and their respective sentences. When the conversation progressed, Samantha revealed what happened the previous night. She remarked that she would likely be sent to Low Newton Prison. She did not seem phased by her impending arrest or incarceration and seemed almost glad. Samantha said she could have her own room, her own television. It might be a chance to get her life back on track. She could do courses and she could even get a PlayStation games console. However, after the police were informed and arrived to make an arrest, Samantha said, What the fuck? I don't understand. When examining Samantha's room, officers found a drawing she had made of a woman stabbing a man with a smile on her face. In blue ink, the man is crying with blood coming from a wound coloured with red biro. Along with these two stick figures are three smaller characters who appear to be children with their eyes closed. Drawn in blue biro, they have then been scribbled out with red pen. When asked why she had made the drawing, Samantha said she was prompted to look for a creative outlet for her anger, so she put her thoughts down on paper. Samantha confessed to being at Angela Wrightson's home. However, in her first interview, she claimed that when she arrived with Jennifer, it appeared, at least to them, that Angela had already been attacked. Angela allegedly made mention of someone called Julia, and then, according to Samantha, the girls left. She said Angela was okay when they walked out of the front door. Jennifer also admitted that she was at the property and said that the girls drank cider together with Angela. She was arrested only hours after Angela's body was found. When initially questioned, Jennifer was not as dismissive of the charge she faced as Samantha, but became upset and teary-eyed, asking if her friend had been arrested too. According to the younger suspect, Angela already had two black eyes. But from this point onwards, this is where her account diverged from her co-accused. Jennifer claimed that she did not take part in the attack, only watched from the sidelines. I will admit I was in the vicinity, she said. I didn't murder her, I just sat there. Jennifer's confession to the authorities was different from the one she had given to a friend. In this account, a disagreement took place. It was alleged Angela told the girls to fuck off. Samantha became enraged and picked up a table and smashed it over Angela's body. Jennifer said that she tried to intervene, but Samantha then kicked Angela in the face. Angela struggled to her feet, and in an effort to defend herself, she picked up a knife. Jennifer said at this point she disarmed Angela, 
although Samantha continued with the assault and began to smash the contents of the house to pieces. Puzzlingly, the pair then left the scene and returned. Apparently, Angela was still alive at this point. When the girls walked through the front door, it was claimed they were met with a barrage of abuse. So according to Jennifer, Samantha continued the attack. Following the opening remarks, a summary of the case and evidence from witnesses, the trial was adjourned for the weekend. Jurors expected to return to continue the trial the following week. However, they were greeted in Teesside Crown Court by Mr Justice Globe, who explained that they were to be discharged. A new trial would take place at a later date. The judge's decision was not opposed by either the prosecution or defence. Little information was available for why precisely the legal proceedings had been halted. It would only be revealed the following year that the judge had been made aware that the killings had sparked a wave of anger. Members of the public went online to not only identify the two girls, but due to the sheer level of abuse and threats to their lives, the judge felt he had no other option than to reschedule the trial. Only a few days into the proceedings, the police and barristers presented Mr Justice Globe with over 500 comments on Facebook, most of which were seen as being prejudicial to the case. Jamie Hill QC, who was defending Samantha, the older of the two girls, made it clear that members of the public were not simply offering their sympathy. This has generated extremely vitriolic, almost hysterical comment against the defendants, against the trial process, he said. It goes far beyond the normal comment which would be generated in a regular murder trial. Articles from the Hartley Paul Mail, the Daily Mirror, the Sunderland Echo, Breaking News Teesside and Sky News had been shared on Facebook. While it was agreed that the reporting on the case was, quote, fair, accurate and reasonable, the problem was the extreme comments to these posts left by members of the public on Facebook. The judge at first ordered every digital media outlet to take down any reference to the case from their websites, which would disable the ability to share information about the killing. Journalists were also ordered to refrain from discussing the legal proceedings on social media. Mr Justice Globe was of the opinion that the defendants would not have a fair hearing because of a, quote, virtual lynching mob by ill-informed members of the public. In a ruling after the trial was abandoned, the judge said that the digital articles by the media posted on Facebook ascribe significance to numerous comments that would otherwise have had lesser significance if they had been solely within a member of the public's private Facebook page. 
This meant that no media organisations would be able to mention the legal proceedings until the trial was over. In between Mr Justice Globe's ruling and the start of a new trial, the decision was appealed by nine media outlets, most notably The Guardian, The Times, Sky News and the BBC. The legal challenge, which argued that not only had the decision affected journalistic freedom but the public's right to know how a trial in open court was progressing, worked its way to the Court of Appeal. An outcome was reached during February 2016, when the appeal was upheld, although all media outlets would have to follow a strict set of guidelines if they were to write about the case. If their websites provided the ability to comment on an article, this function needed to be disabled. They were not allowed to share details about the trial on social media. Seven months had passed between Angela Wrightson's death and the start of the first trial. After the original set of jurors were discharged, another seven months would come and go before a further 12 members of the public formed a jury, this time at Leeds Crown Court. They would hear the charge against the two teenage girls accused of murder. This is the end of episode 39. To hear more on the case of Angela Wrightson, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Sonia Yovanovitch, and everyone who supports us on Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.